Upon my word, neighbor Stone, if it were not for my firm's reputation in generous dealing, I... No, no, give it to me. I'll sign. I'm afraid I'll have to prick your finger, neighbor Stone. But what's a little pain to a lucky man? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rollane. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 107, back to Cole's choice. What are we covering today? We are talking about one of my all-time, and I mean all-time favorites, The Devil and Daniel Webster from 1941, directed by William Dieterle and starring Walter Houston, Edward Arnold, James Craig, Anne Shirley, Jane Darwell, Simone Simone, and John Quaylen. It was adapted by Stephen Vincent Benet and Dan Totharo from Benet's own short story of the same name, and the film itself went by many names other than this one. Most often, you see it as All That Money Can Buy, but also Mr. Scratch, Daniel and the Devil, and Here is a Man. And it is the story of a Faustian bargain in which a New Hampshire farmer sells his soul for economic prosperity and then gets a fancy lawyer from the city to come get him out of the deal. From the first moment, you know you're in for something special, or at least I did. The RKO logo that I love so much, that's one of my favorite production logos of all time. And then that list of contributors. Dieterle already had A Midsummer Night's Dream and The Hunchback of Notre Dame in his pocket, among many others. Pulitzer winner Benet was adapting his own O. Henry award-winning short story. Jane Darwell was fresh off a career-defining performance in The Grapes of Wrath. Bernard Herrmann turned in what I think is still his best score ever, and that's saying something. And then you've got Edward Arnold, Walter Houston, Robert Wise, no slouches there. The pedigree of this thing is extremely impressive. And already, it's really ingenious collaborative credits, the way that they're put together, and it makes me think, we're going to see something special. And Dieterle also has some collaborators that he worked with before, and some people that are coming over from the Citizen Kane production, which I think looms large over this, especially as it's also an RKO production. I think it was a signal that something new is coming. We've got creative license here that we maybe didn't have before. We open in a fairy tale in New England, in the border country between New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Vermont, which I guess this is the Yankee equivalent of going down to the crossroads if you were in the Delta. And there we find Old Scratch, the devil himself, and his book with everyone's name in it, including yours. And his appointment this time is with Jabez Stone, who is a poor New Hampshire farmer that is as plagued by bad luck as we are by his whining about it. I think it's very appropriate that a church trip here is thwarted by an animal with a cloven hoof. And there's hardship in the air for all poor New Hampshire farmers, including and especially Jabez. I don't immediately feel a lot of sympathy for this character, do you? He seems to be in good spirits and he's got good women around him, but I do feel sympathy in general for all farmers. It seems like such a hard scrabble existence. Well, you're a little more generous than I in this case, which leads me to my follow-up, I guess. Do you think my response, if not yours, is rooted 
in the character or in this specific performance? Because I think of him as kind of a simpleton. To me, James Craig gives a performance that's just a step above Jethro Bodine here. He definitely comes off like a clodhopper, which seems pretty appropriate for the character. I do get the implication, and I didn't really sense it before, but in this viewing, that because they're childless, that's also kind of a blight. I don't see it as a huge drawback, I should clarify. Ultimately, that's all all alright, because it works for what this story needs. And notice, his name is not in the title. This movie is not technically about him. This is a clash between two far more significant characters. But you're right, not to put too fine a point on the farmer's lot in life. For this Sunday's lesson, Ma is reading a joyful passage from the book of Job. (laughs) And I love how she lays out her philosophy. We made New England out of hard luck. That and codfish. Jabez's wife, Mary, who's a little bit of a softer sort, she asks if she can read from the book of Ruth instead, and that's not an insignificant choice either. I really like this brief exchange for a couple of reasons. It's our first example of how Mary is our balance. She's pitched directly in between Ma Stone's sturdy Old Testament outlook and Jabez's weakness and corruptibility. And this choice of readings both apply best to Mary as well, both in terms of trials and tribulations and gentle steadfastness. Mary is ever optimistic, so much so that she even peels potatoes towards herself, which always sends a chill down my spine when I see it on screen. And that's Anne Shirley, whom I'm inclined to just think of as a beatific person anyway, and that's solely based on Anne of Green Gables. So you're looking at her through that filter and not the three divorces and telling the second husband, eh, go on ahead without me, I'm going to stay here, all those things. It is. I only learned of those things afterwards. And by the way, that Dear John letter to second husband was because of the Hollywood blacklist that he was under. Hers is a really interesting story. She retired at age 26 and then lived in Los Angeles for the next 50 years. That's really how you preserve yourself in amber, and it certainly worked for me. Well, in addition to bad luck, the region has been plagued by these strange weather patterns, too. And I like the seed this plants in your mind, that something unnatural is afoot, that forces larger than us are moving in sinister ways that we can't control or understand. It's that slight whiff of brimstone in the air. It also means that someone is always going to be a winner and someone's always going to be a loser. My favorite thing that the film does just right away is the mood and atmosphere that it establishes with all this stuff. This film belongs to a school of rough-hewn Americana that I really hold near and dear to my heart. It insinuates itself directly between the supernatural pastorals of Washington Irving and then that square-shouldered vigor and optimism of Carl Sandburg that I've probably talked about half a dozen times on the show already. And in terms of translating the story to the screen, I really love how the folkloric setting leaves more room for crude, exaggerated, and fantastic filmmaking elements. Dieterle brought that angular darkness of German Expressionist cinema where he once performed, coincidentally, in Murnau's Faust, and then he combined that seamlessly with this lushness gleaned from working in the Hollywood system. It really strikes the perfect tone for this surreal folktale. Shot after shot, he lures us deeper into the story with well-placed key lights and judiciously used special effects until we find ourselves immersed in this haunted world of shadows and fire and smoke. Let me mention some of the people who helped contribute to that look and feel. One being Joseph August, the cinematographer. 
He worked with Dieterle on The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Portrait of Jenny. He died shortly after completing Portrait of Jenny and got his second Oscar nomination posthumously for that film. But if you look at his run of credits up to 1948, that's not very far into the movie business. Dozens and dozens of films this guy shot. What struck me in researching this was how many of the people involved in this film were born in the 1800s, now late 1800s to be fair, and then a number of them also died shortly after this. But like you mentioned, working in the early days of filmmaking, they had dozens and dozens of credits to their names. And we also have special effects expert Vernon L. Walker, who came over from Citizen Kane. He worked on more than 220 films during his career, which spanned 28 years. And he died just a few years after this film. And I want to mention the art direction from Al Herman, who also did King Kong, by the way. The main credit here went to Van Nest Pole Glaze, but it's a little bit of a similar situation to what you see with Cedric Gibbons over on MGM Productions. He was the head of the art department and by rights got all of the credit, and then you'll see sub-art directors below that, but he may never have even touched the film. Well, it soon becomes apparent that Miser Stevens has the majority of these farmers under his thumb, and they propose the radically progressive step of forming a grange, which is a sort of farmer's cooperative. It has the air of communism about it. And then you have Daniel Webster, an impressive statesman and orator, who is on about this farmer's bankruptcy bill. This movie is as political as it is supernatural, which is fitting, I suppose, because where other than the political arena can you find Faustian bargains cut on a daily basis? So, of course, we cut to Scratch whispering in Webster's ear, but Webster is stronger than that for now. I think it's fascinating that already he's got a devil on his shoulder persuading him against altruism. And Miser Stevens here is the one that's the winner in this battle, Possibly with some odds stacked in his favor. I was going to say, there's some big quotation marks around winner in that case. That's the very lovable, at least to me, John Quaylen as Miser Stevens. Now, Jabez is trying to make it, but there's a mortgage to pay, and all he has is some cursing on his side. And with a wife hurt, and a bag of seed that was intended to pay that debt broken, Jabez would sell his soul for about two cents. It's not just an injured wife or a bag of seed. It's a piglet with a broken leg. There's a fox in the hen house. The bullshit never ends for the New Hampshire farmer, apparently. But here's where the thing really takes off. You say that he invokes the devil's name and selling his soul, and all of a sudden, two cents appear in his palm. It's a really chilling scene. I love that scene. And then we have the magnificent Walter Houston. He makes that incredible entrance, augmented by all these fun little tricks and special effects. His calling card goes up in flames. The way he kicks the floorboards just a little harder than necessary to release these coins. And I like how that implies that there's a casual violence in him that might not be obvious. He goes on to indelibly write the date in a tree with his cigar. There are all sorts of neat little diabolical touches here. And the name you mentioned before, Vernon L. Walker, he's responsible for these. He really contributed to a supernatural feeling. Without him, this would not be the film that I love so much. And he did so much work, you're right. I think another great effect that he's probably responsible for, in Hitchcock's suspicion, that glowing glass of milk that is so iconic, that may have been Hitchcock's idea. I don't know that we can exactly track this, 
but it was Vernon L. Walker that put it together and made that happen. I love also that Old Scratch is not referred to as the devil. We know him as he's known around these parts. And that effect, when we first see Scratch appear in the fireplace, that's double exposure and optical printing, by the way. Walter Houston here reminds me a little bit of a leprechaun. <laughs> Twinkling, mischievous, devious. And he convinces Jabez that there's wondrous gold to be had here for his soul, and don't really worry too much about the soul. It doesn't really exist. There's another underlying part of his pitch that's implied that I like, or actually probably explicitly stated, I should say. It's not just that this gold is available, it's also that hard work is for chumps. It's not that difficult to convince him because Jabez is deficient already, I think, character-wise. But he rejects the Grange, and it's every man for himself. He even specifically says, Daniel Webster can't help me. He's oblivious to how wrong he is about every single thing. I think that aspect of his character, being so easily led away from the idea that hard work is good, is why you fault him the most. You're probably onto something there. That's probably why I respond to his character this way. It really touches a chord in me to see that, especially when you juxtapose that with what the rest of the film and the story is actually saying about our young nation and the way it was made. But isn't everyone completely wrong about everything when they are selling their soul, when they're in such desperate straits? It's just sign here on the dotted line and then Scratch disappears in the waving fields of alfalfa. Now, Ma and Mary are the grounded ones who don't quite believe in the good fortune and don't really partake of it. I really like the close-ups on each woman's face, Mary and Ma, when he produces this gold. And I love Ma's response to this. I hope it'll do more good than it did the Hessians. Ma with the zing and the history lesson at the same time. They sit down to eat, Jabez with his money in his lap, and he begins to eat before the blessing is even finished. So if you weren't sure of it already... We are looking at a man whose appetites outstrip his morality. So what follows for him should come as no surprise. So it took about two cents and two seconds for him to just throw away his entire life. Well, a little more than two cents. Because we go on a shopping spree now. I've now seen this movie several times, and this is the first viewing, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, that I realized that Miser Stevens had also struck the deal with the devil. I don't know why I missed that before. Well, we learn that because Jabez goes into town to square all his accounts. And that's where his first visit is. So long, mortgage. Do you know what kind of jerk you have to be to have Miser as just an accepted part of your handle? <laughs> Nobody ever says good guy, Stevens. But you're right. He recognizes these coins, these ill-gotten gains. He has some of his own. So he knows the deal that's been struck. And more importantly, he knows and feels and experiences every day the corruption that awaits Jabez. In the meantime, Daniel Webster has come to town, which means that Old Scratch is not far behind. He always has his hand in politics. He's very much a part of the fabric of this community, at least now, and at least from time to time, at integral spots. He's banging the drum here in the village parade. Yeah, I really like that parade. One of the things that really strikes me about it is the inclusion of this Revolutionary War veteran. It's such a shocking idea. We're used to seeing maybe... Civil War reenactors, but this really puts an exclamation point on the ideas that we are fighting for as a country in 1840 when the story is set, and just how much we're in our infancy as a republic right then. 
it's one of the things that makes the preponderance of patriotism in the film more palatable and more honest for me. Because it's one thing to have a great-grandfather who fought to defend the country in World War II, and we're a few generations removed from that. But now imagine going to a parade and seeing your great-grandfather that fought at Bunker Hill, Yorktown, Lexington, Concord, that literally fought to bring the nation into existence. And also, the War of 1812 is still a specter here. Battles still being fought for our national identity. I want to talk a bit, just for a moment, about the story itself, the original story from 1936. I hadn't read it in many, many years. I read it recently, though, for this episode. And I think major credit has to be given to Stephen Vincent Benet for this adaptation, along with Dan Todoro. He took very slim bones from this story and made it into something great and full. Benet was also born in the late 1800s. And also, it seems like practically a Tarkovsky effect here, died a few years after the film as well. You mentioned patriotism. That's a huge theme in the story, and I think it's given a lot of ambiguity in the translation to film as well. I'm particularly struck by how the devil is portrayed in the story versus the film. He's much more polite and refined in the story. He's a tall, dark stranger. But when you read the characterization of Daniel Webster, I think Edward Arnold perfectly comes to light. You mentioned that Scratch is pounding the drum in this procession. What else would he be doing? But Daniel Webster, he's just kind of riding around in his buggy being everyone's pal. And can you think of any easier sell than Edward Arnold as a man of the people? And that's after seeing him as countless ruthless tycoons. I think it's that aspect of him that he does have underlying darkness. We learn more about him as the film goes on, and you believe that he has a devil on his shoulder. You see that coming out in possibly his drinking problem, and also he was a bit of a difficult moral character to reckon with in actual history. At this community event, Webster is denouncing loan sharking, and Jabez is quickly becoming the biggest one around, even if he doesn't think so. And I'm struck here by what the film is saying coming out of the Great Depression and what the nation as a whole might be in danger of going to. And very tellingly, Jabez is no longer saying grace. Should we even count the instances of seven deadly sins here? Pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. I think Jabez can mark every one of those off of his Cardinal Vice's bingo card before even halfway through the movie. As a lovely counterpoint, though, we've already brought it up, Mary is as pure as Jabez is corrupt. She's frequently lit in a way that I can only describe as angelic. And then you contrast that with the sinister figure that Walter Houston cuts as he strolls around the property in the deep shadows of the new moon. He's apparently made himself quite at home on the stone property. Apparently, all that makes Jabez pretty horny. A new moon is for planting, after all. So we see him go to Mary in her bed, fade out. As a parallel line to all that, Jabez has set himself up to loan seed and money, like you say. In an indication of how far he's already gone astray, seed has lost all of its significance to him as anything except a revenue stream. We'll soon see that Jabez is thinking about a son and by extension, his legacy, but he is obviously not in his right mind. As they point out, it would profit him none. Seed no longer being sacred to him the way it once was, that is loaded with dark implications for his family, especially considering this montage that follows. And it's a really beautiful one. That prosperity continues. 
Mary is pregnant. The seed is sown. The rains come. The crops grow. The animals give birth. I love this montage scene. It may be one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. I think it's a fairly impressionistic sequence for a film that's otherwise pretty straightforward with its narrative technique. So it really stands out. Speaking of impressionism, there's a shot later that reminds me of a Millet painting. But you mentioned this about the montage. It made you think of something kind of groundbreaking, like the plow that broke the plains. It did. It has that sweeping poetic set to music. It's beautiful. And then it all settles on that dissolve where all of these elements are contained in the screen together, but you have Mary lying there implying that she is the fertile ground. There's a lot of discussion here about capitalism versus the social contract in terms of the right way to spend money. What if you got the money in bad ways? It's not too late, in other words, as a man can always change, and if Jane Darwell says so, I'd believe her. As often happens in these infernal deals, some buyer's remorse is setting in, obviously. But it's too little too late. We have an incredible hailstorm that erupts, and then that great effect of Jabez throwing a hatchet at Scratch and he catches it as it bursts into flames. That would have blown my mind in 1941. I still love it now. Thank you again, Vernon L. Walker. I think this visit from Scratch is probably the most humorous of all their interactions. He's almost like Bugs Bunny. He's eating carrots, being a wise-ass, running off when he hears <laughs> Ma coming. There's a lot of comedy in this. Is Walter Houston your favorite devil on screen of all time? I know you were just telling me how much you like Adam Sandler and Little Nicky. <laughs> Was I? Of, yeah, okay. one of your favorites, Let's right? I've never seen it. But for the purposes of this story, yes, Walter Houston, my favorite. I also am thinking of Ray Milland and alias Nick mm, Beale. That's a great one. And Jack Nicholson in The Witches of Eastwick. You have two I didn't have, but I think I have one that you also really enjoy. I love Peter Cook in Bedazzled. He's one of my favorites. Robert De Niro and Angel Heart also got to be in my top five, probably. And I think it's interesting that we both picked a comic versus a very severe, tragic one. I like Ray Milland in that he has that complete contempt for humanity, whereas Jack Nicholson embodies that mischievousness but is also able to wreak havoc. I have one other that's right near the top that I think gets overlooked a lot. Tom Waits. I think... Tom Waits, from the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, is the only other one that could give Walter Houston a run for his money. But as a raconteur and a roustabout, speaking of Tom Waits, <laughs> Houston really is just without equal. He's playing the world's oldest salesman as if he had been around that long himself, somehow. None of these others quite have that one raised eyebrow is worth a thousand words thing like Houston does. There's only one slightly false note in the whole performance for me. And if it didn't occur at such a pivotal moment, I might not have noticed it or put such an emphasis on it. But at the climax of the film, when the jury turns to deliberate on what Scratch thought was a foregone conclusion as far as the outcome, Houston's expression exhibits surprise to me, which I don't agree with. Disappointment, sure, indignation, I could see that. But for a character like this, who has been dealing with human beings as long as he presumably has, that character should have enough wisdom and experience to never be surprised by any single thing that humans do. It's a small quibble, though. Easily overcome. In every other aspect, I think he's perfect. And the physical aspects of the performance are notable as well. With every motion, he inches closer. 
insinuating himself, touching you, engaging in this rancid, queasy intimacy, mocking you while he does it. And that's a technique that Simone Simone is exceptional at as well, though in her case I wouldn't mind so much probably. This devil definitely has the best minion, that's for sure. From the first second she appears on screen, it feels like she is slithering around under your skin. And that's even more unnerving than Scratch when you watch her encroach the same way on a helpless infant singing it diabolical lullabies. And her character of Belle was a complete invention solely for the film, and I think an absolute masterful one. Partly, I think this performance works so well because I do believe that Simone Simon is from another planet. I think she is just some other alien being. And I understand why it was so difficult to cast her. This seems like a perfect role for her. And then cat people that she got from this would be the other version of a great role for her. Maybe it's her elfin face. Maybe it's her voice, the way she moves. Do you feel the same way? I do. And it's always one of those things that's perplexed me as to why we didn't see more of her. Why people didn't capitalize more on that, what I feel like is a very bankable star power. There were stories that she was really difficult on set that maybe she thought more of herself than her co-workers did. Uh, that probably contributes to some of what we see on screen, though. I guess it's, you know, you trade some of that for this. I think it's more of an actor needing to find the right part. You can't just slot her into anything and have it work. That's very true, but they were able to do that for Garbo, for Dietrich, so why couldn't they do it for Simone? Well, back to the story, the farmers continue to have it rough, and this hailstorm has ruined everyone's fields but Jabez's. Meanwhile, his fortunes continue to rise, culminating in his son's birth on the night of the big harvest dance. Daniel is both the child's name and his godfather, and it's on this eventful night that the maid Dorothy is replaced by Belle from over the mountain. From the very first second, she is so sinister and seductive, and you watch Mary and Ma instinctively recoil in her presence, as do I when she is hovering over Mary and the baby. It's one more entry that we have now in the long tradition of the father banging the nanny. I joke, but this is a real fear that you could play upon in the audience, because this is a tale as old as time, right? Do you know how many of my true crime stories start this way, replacing the wife with a younger model? That she's from over the mountain is one of my favorite uses of language in this film. She's so fresh and cunning <laughs> and knowing. And then we have that amazing harvest dance when she joins in and Scratch plays like the devil faster and faster. Now, when you go back to watch the movie again, listeners, and I hope you do, appreciate even more the contributions of Bernard Herrmann here. That diabolical version of Pop Goes the Weasel was achieved by having a violinist play it four times in slightly different versions and then overdubbing them. Somebody pointed out to him that couldn't you have just had four violinists play the song? And he said it would have sounded like a quartet instead, not like one person playing. He also wrote the music for the film as it was being shot, by the way. And I forgot to mention this earlier, so I wanted to get it in here. When we first see Scratch in the barn... That sound that we hear is the hum of phone lines in San Francisco at four in the morning. The score and sound design are, again, really one of my favorite parts of this whole thing. Herman's score is just astounding. His attention to detail and dedication to finding the right 
sounds for this film. It resulted in his only Academy Award. Oh, I didn't realize that. And that bit you mentioned with the fiddler, his reasoning for that is just perfect. Because it really does. And this is a fine distinction to make, maybe. But when you listen to it, you can hear this. It sounds like one impossibly skilled player, not a frenzied ensemble. And those humming telephone lines are such a nice, unidentifiable touch that keeps you off balance. You can't quite put your finger on what would make this noise. And then some of the coolest stuff didn't even make it onto the screen. A biography of Herman... It makes reference to a piece of music that accompanies a lost scene in which Scratch drives his sleigh into hell, which sounds incredible. Wow. Is that available anywhere? I guess not. I've looked and looked, but I haven't been able to find it. It may be, but I have not been able to put my hand to it yet. I definitely want to see it. Should we hit the road and start combing through attics and hope someday we'll find it? I'm going to do that all the time anyway. I don't <laughs> Good care point. what we find. But back to Belle... Scratch has essentially installed a handmaiden in the stone household as a hedge against the righteous influence of Mary and Ma, and Jabez's downfall is all but guaranteed. Belle quickly becomes a corrupting influence, and the Sabbath isn't being observed. She's singing and draping herself all over him while they're gambling on Sunday. Meanwhile, Mary's in church, and this section is really interesting in how it plays like a modern horror film with that cross-cutting. I think the handling of the relationship between Jabez and Bell is easily the most subversive element in this whole thing. Scratch's technique is to prey on the emotional and intellectual weaknesses that Jabez has, which are a few, but just for example, this powerful argument that bad luck is simply unnecessary. That makes sense, but it's only half the equation. Bell's seduction of Jabez is undeniably physical, sealing the deal. She is the instrument with which Scratch makes certain that Jabez's every desire is satisfied. But how do you portray that in 1941? I want to give some credit here to a person I don't always want to give credit to, and that's Robert Wise, for that amazing editing. I say that because he made one of my all-time favorites, The Sound of Music, but then has very famously had a hand in The Magnificent Ambersons, so I tend to think of him in not the greatest light. More of a workaday person, maybe a studio hand instead an of an artist, too. possibly. And I don't know that that's completely fair, yeah. but he does great work here. No, he's made some of my favorites too, The Haunting. So I guess it's another version of somebody I'm slagging off with really <laughs> not much basis for it. Well, I think it's really clever how they insinuate all the things that are going on. On the evening of his son's birth... Jabez finds himself chasing Belle all around the barn as these fiddles careen out of control, and he asks, Shall we dance, Belle? And that pause is not mine. That's in the script. It's performed that way. You could drive a hay wagon through that pause. You could drive a big sleigh through that <laughs> pause. The doctor's barely cut the cord, and he's trying out his best pickup lines. As his degradation continues, he leaves his marital bed one evening to escape the crying of his newborn son and finds himself at what is presumably Belle's bedroom door. And at that exact instant, Scratch pops in the window. What's the matter, neighbor Stone? Conscience bothering you? We'll take care of that. Give me your hand. So he literally leads Jabez directly into temptation. And then Belle replaces Mary everywhere else in the Stone household almost as quickly as in the bedroom, and people begin to talk. It's 1941, we're still dealing with the Hayes Code and everything, but there might as well be a neon sign on this movie that says, hey, your protagonist 
is having really hot adulterous sex with a literal demon while his wife and newborn baby are asleep not 30 feet away. But this was 1941, so it can't be that explicit. But you can read between those lines. Well, Jabez is getting fatter and fatter off of the dough. Not literally, but he's erecting this mansion, an edifice to his money. And he has now a young son, Daniel. Now a boy, an arrogant and a liar. He's a real shit. His namesake, Daniel Webster, is coming back to town and he's going to be guest of honor at this event at Jabez's housewarming. I think Daniel Webster is actually really coming back at Mary's behest. It's not necessarily because he received this invitation. He doesn't know everything that's been going on, though. And he pretty innocently meets his namesake here. The best moment is when young Daniel, that jerk, throws a rock at Webster's horses and gets spanked later for continuing to act like a jerk. It was on this buggy ride with his little rat of a godson that I began to wonder to myself this question... Because they're discussing a little bit about it, why didn't Daniel Webster actually become president in real life? Cue me tugging on my collar. <laughs> Obviously, Webster's not perfect. He has no problem cozying up to a jug of rum, like you say. And in real life, his fondness for strong drink, which he refers to at one point as the breath of the promised land in the movie, that was no secret. When the real Webster died after a fall from his horse, cirrhosis of the liver was a complicating factor. In the film, just before the climax, in an illuminating bit of dialogue, he tells us that he has never left a jug or a case half-finished. So in this one sentence, he makes clear that his love of alcohol and justice are on a pretty even footing. It obviously takes more than that to undo a politician, though, then or now. In much bigger news, I think it was his equivocation on the issue of slavery that really didn't do his legacy any favors. He advocated for the biggest devil's bargain in the world, the Missouri Compromise, the Fugitive Slave Act. And it was all to maintain the Union at any cost, and I'm going to put any cost in there. And we're still reckoning with that. And we have to reckon with it in the story, too, in a little bit. That ambiguity that becomes so fascinating in the context of this film. All of that takes us up to this really nice set piece that centers on... Jabez throwing this lavish party, and it's full of great moments. The spirits from over the mountain that are hovering expectantly outside the window. When they finally arrive and there's dancing, it reminds me so much of Carnival of Souls. This had to have influenced that film. You've got Miser Stevens by the fireside, sick and sweaty, making this sort of confession to Jabez, knowing that that seven-year deadline is about to come knocking on his door. And then Belle dances Stevens to death as Daniel Webster walks in the door. And to top it all off, guess who shows up? Scratch. And he's reminding Jabez that their deal was for money and all that money can buy. It's also frantic and hallucinatory. And then it just drops away to nothing with Stevens dead on the floor. And a touch that I love so much that if you blink, you could miss it. You watch the curtains slowly billowing out of the windows like anything resembling humanity has been sucked out of the room forever. And then that last insult. Daniel Webster, his soul would require a special vessel. You, I could put you in my vest pocket. Daniel Webster has been alerted to everything that's happened to Jabez, all the changes that have been wrought on his character. And he chastises Jabez here for this loan sharking. That means that Jabez then blames Mary for talking about him. 
Jabez throws Mary out and their son goes with her. I love that Bell says, you should have done that years ago. Now this, plus the death of Miser Stevens, is enough that Jabez decides to try to chop down the tree and erase the debt. But he can't. And Scratch has a new bargain for him. Well, this is going south for Jabez in a hurry. He's desperate. Scratch is now angling for his son. Jabez has already broken his contract, so he could be taken at any time. Now that things are finally coming undone, I had to wonder, with the Book of Job being invoked early on, up to this point, do you think Jabez ever truly suffers? He seems to suffer only when it's convenient for him. It smacks a little bit of deathbed repentance right here. I think you're totally right, because at last he begs for mercy, and that's very convenient here. Ma finds him collapsed in the darkness, and as she has been his whole life, she is now the light to guide the way. And whom do we turn to in this darkest hour? Daniel Webster, of course. Superhero of jurisprudence. So we go back to the barn where it all started for a trial. And there's really a brilliant bit of pretrial jousting in which Scratch defends himself against Webster's accusations of being a foreign prince. And I know you're particularly fond of this section. What is it about this exchange that you find so intriguing? I think it's fascinating at this very moment in our time to hear the term foreign prince and think about being beholden or in the service of a foreign prince and what that means right now. And of course, in 1840, it would mean so much more, again, what we just fought for in 1812. But this is really all about the oratory that we've been waiting for. I think that part actually starts with Houston himself. He has this great monologue about the long lineage of evil. He was there when the first wrong was done to the first Indian. I love two things about how this kicks off. Houston's delivery, for one thing, and then especially the implication of the compelling and eternal nature of evil, which I think is actually the thesis statement of the story as reinforced by the ending, but we'll get to that. Again, there's some fascinating, ambiguous statements here, mentioning the Indians, which people might have been not at all conflicted about at the time in 1840, or then, or now, for a lot of people, and invoking the image of the first slave ship. These are questions that we just touch upon briefly in the film, and I don't think get completely answered. Some of that is in service to this actual trial, that we may say one thing, but do another. And I love here that Webster and the devil are both portrayed as these great persuaders, Two sides of the same coin, maybe? Or the same side of two coins. Could be. <laughs> so I think in general, there's a lot of ambivalence about how some of these subjects are treated. And that's also with the jury. This is the jury of the damned called true Americans, though a number of them wouldn't have even considered themselves to be Americans. And so I think it's fascinating to reflect on the time of 1941 and the time that we're watching it now. There's a lot of talk here about shortcuts that we take, which I think always apply, but still appealing to these larger questions within the trial, humanity, freedom, personal freedom, patriotism, independence, the ability to change, though what would any of these people have done differently, I wonder? A very good question, and I think at least something, because their decision implies that if they could they would change at least some little bit of how this has gone for them because they grant him clemency. 
But up from the depths comes this jury of the damned that you talk about. And I really love the touch of Benedict Arnold always covering his face as if in shame. My favorite is the judge, Judge Hawthorne, mm. who was the only judge in the Salem witch trials to never apologize. So much so that Nathaniel Hawthorne had to adjust the spelling of his name to distance himself. This is a true rogues gallery. This trial is something I feel like I have always known somehow. Like I was born with the memory of it. There are certain scenes that I carry around like this that just feel like they're part of my DNA that feel like I have known about this from well before I should. They have always been there for me somehow. I'm wondering if any of our listeners have those sorts of things. But the way it works on this scene, it makes it less disquieting and more comforting than it should be. I guess I'm still wrestling with that a little bit, because when I read more, again, those questions about treatment of the Indians, questions of slavery, questions of belief in the devil, personal freedom versus that social contract, where do I fall? What do I think should happen? And do I think that a little bit of great oratory should save the day here and save the soul? Well, everything is certainly riding on Webster's reason and oratory skills and he appeals to patriotism. He appeals to their shared circumstances, to individual liberty, self-sovereignty. I don't know if it was the same for you, but I was really surprised by this the first time I saw it, in that there was no legal trickery, no loophole. My lifetime of viewing has conditioned me to expect that, and it didn't happen. Was it the same for you? I think I'm with you. In essence, he rises above himself to deliver the speech that I want to believe he truly believes in. It's definitely a little Capra-esque, but the fairy tale aspect of it is another thing for me that makes this sort of patriotism palatable. If you think Mr. Smith goes to Washington is a bit much, then this might be better for you, for example, just for that reason. Appealing to the humanity of the damned pitches it a little bit differently. Another thing I was wondering, are you as surprised as I am when you see the politics of this misinterpreted because I see it misread as conservative when I think it's more individual liberty that's the focus. The patriotism is misread as jingoism. I mean, Jabez essentially ends up rejecting capitalism and embracing communism. So I don't know how you could read this film as particularly conservative, but do you see that too? I definitely don't see it as conservative. It actually never even occurred to me. Maybe I hadn't thought enough about it. Maybe it was watching those two conflicting forces that are conflicted in themselves. I was on the first slave ship, and I also defended the Fugitive Slave Act. And really, I think if you look at Dieterle himself, he said that he, in fact, felt like he was on a gray list, in essence, because his films were thought to be liberal in general. That's exactly what I was thinking about it, because I was wondering how much of this is Dieterle speaking and how much of this is Benet. Dieterle had left Germany to escape the political tailspin that country was in and then became an American citizen here in 1937. He and Fritz Long were apparently instrumental in getting Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill out of Germany. So politics and love of country are a big deal, and I can really understand the instinct to embrace your new home and its mythology and folklore. And to me, his progressive leanings were always clear. I definitely agree he was gray-listed. When you look at his filmography and the way it lines up with the ebbing and flowing of the House on american Activities Committee, all those things, you can definitely see it. 
And the other part of it that I think makes it not so conservative for me is that I appreciate how grounded and reasonable it is for a folktale about the devil. It's surprisingly secular, the argument that this film makes, especially being that this was made in the 40s and the property in question was someone's mortal soul. It's a morality tale, sure, but the conflict is never presented as the infernal versus the divine. The struggle is never old world that way. What we have instead is a microcosm of a troubled young nation where self-determinism is the coin of the realm, where a man is free to make his way employing honesty and toil and where redemption can be found when we practice compassion and reason in equal measure, no matter how old or complicated our nation becomes. These are things that we would all do well, regardless of religious affiliation or lack thereof, to remember. And hopefully also that it's never too late to change. We are a country forged in blood, steeped in it. They're standing in it. Those people in the jury are there by their own actions, and Webster is there by his own actions. And going back to the story for a moment, I think it is fitting that it won the O. Henry Prize. Because you have the devil telling Daniel Webster, yes, the union will stand, but everything that you've made will not. And so all of these things that you have helped rot. Well, in the short term, the jury finds for the defendant. Webster appealed to them, don't let this country go to the devil. And they don't, at least for the moment. And so with this new lease on life, all bets are off. Let the new house burn. Jabez has seen the error of his ways. But who laughs last indeed? Because Houston reminds us, and I love this touch of him breaking the fourth wall and directly pointing at the audience that you, the viewer, are in Scratch's book. And I really like this nod to James Montgomery Flagg's I Want You, Uncle Sam poster. Not in the sense that the film is a recruitment poster. No, it's more that it's 1941. This iconography is certainly on people's minds. And I think it's a bold kind of subversive thing to tie that image and its relative purity to the idea that there is no getting rid of evil. It's always going to be there beating the drum in the parade. It's always going to be there in the saloon to sow discord, and it wants you. I hope we have done this beautiful, amazing, odd, subversive, weird, supernatural film justice. I think so. I love this movie so much. This is truly a desert island disc for me. If I could only take a handful of possessions, this is going on that trip. I feel like it's just tailor-made for me, with its marriage of early Americana, Mephistophelian folklore, and then this lineage going back to German Expressionist cinema. It takes the high-minded desires for infinite knowledge and worldly pleasures of its German antecedent, the scholar Faust, and it recasts all of that in a way that Americans of every generation can relate to, from its philosophy to its landscape. You have that great opening shot of Scratch walking up the road, consulting his book, and from those very first frames... We're never more than a few steps away from a waving wheat field. Its breadth suggestive of expansion and growth. Its fecundity suggestive, and we mentioned that great montage that dissolves to the pregnant Mary. That reminds us of the generations to come whose security depends upon the administration of the land, both agricultural and ideological. You've got Ma, who represents the indomitable spirit without which America could not have come to be. Her hands are never idle. The devil's playthings, they are not. She's just a constant source of strength and industry. Jabez, of course, he's weak. 
The devil doesn't typically pick fights that he can't win. Jabez is the hindmost of the group, to be sure. But even as corruptible and dumb as he is, he represents a particularly rural American strand of corruptibility when you compare that to what Faust wanted. In that early episode, when he talks about the sanctity of a simple seed, it's clear that his desires are rooted in the soil, in labor, not in metaphysical or academic pursuits. And then you've got Mary, and she occupies that pragmatic and loving middle ground between those two characters. With her love of family and stoic willingness to do what needs to be done, she is the embodiment of the most basic pure American virtues. I really think it's just a brilliant movie. The other reason I chose it is because I think it's a great example of not being able to predict a film's legacy. It was really heavily lauded at the time, won all kinds of awards, and then just fell off the radar for a long time. You still only really hear cinephiles talk about it. It's not something that's in the normal discourse the way Casablanca is, for example. It reminds me of Ruggles of Red Gap that way. You have an extremely worthy film that will likely only ever be seen again by a specific subset, a really narrow band of the population. Hopefully at least we can encourage some people to go check it out that haven't seen it before. I guarantee you won't be disappointed by it. And as long as we're encouraging people to check stuff out, do you have a recommendation? I was looking for something that would also remind me of the fever dream quality of this film. And because I can't use Portrait of Jenny again, since I already used that as a recommendation, I recommend Vampire from 1932, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, with Julian West, Rena Mandel, Sybil Schmitz, Jan Hieronymico, Henriette Girard, and Maurice Schutz. Now, most of the cast were non-professionals, including the village doctor, who's my favorite. Julian West, by the way, his real name was Nicholas de Gunsberg, and he funded the film. Julian West here plays a student of the occult who enters the village of Cordampierre, which was a real place, by the way, and it's under the curse of a vampire. It came about a year after The Passion of Joan of Arc, if you can even wrap your mind around that. I can't imagine a more different feel even though it does have some returning crew members, that cinematographer Rudolf Maté and art director Herman Varm. It came just a few years after the very popular stage adaptation of Dracula, so it was definitely a popular topic. Todd Browning's version of Dracula with Bela Lugosi was just the year before. This is a wondrous film. It moves so well, with something exciting happening at every moment. Shadows have their own lives. I put lives in quotation marks. And it's also really fun and really spooky by turns. There's absolutely nothing ponderous about it, in case you were concerned about that. How about your recommendation? I went way out on a limb here, and I chose Faust from 1994. And that's directed by Jan Svankmeyer, and it stars Peter Sepik, Jan Kraus, Vladimir Kudla, and Antonin Zakpal. This variation of the Faustian legend centers on a rather nondescript man who is lured into a theater and finds himself pressed into service as the title character in this production. It's classic Svankmeyer. If you know his style, you will be very comfortable with this. It uses that hybrid of live action and outlandish animation, especially marionettes in this case. And all of that keeps the viewer off balance and thereby, I think it's a tool that makes you a little sympathetic to the main character, since he is a bit adrift 
in this chaotic situation that he finds himself in. I mainly recommend it as a counterpoint to the Devil and Daniel Webster because this version actually does concern itself with those old world antecedents and questions. I like that it goes back to focusing on knowledge rather than money, and it challenges the viewer to pull all of its disparate influences and techniques together into a whole that makes sense for you. It's not an easy movie necessarily, but it's worth your time and energy. Just think of it as if Franz Kafka mounted a bizarre Punch and Judy show. Then you're on the right track. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Vampire and Faust. And that brings us to the end of episode 107. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you'll always have new Magic Lantern on a weekly basis, and there are over 20 hours of material waiting for you over there. We had an interesting discussion about another special effects master, that's Norman O'Don, who is sadly a more obscure figure in cinematic history now. Probably a lot of people haven't heard of him, so check that episode out. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, continues to be home to a lot of great shows, and I wanted to talk this time about Film Shake. And this is one of my favorite new shows. Our friends Jordan and Nick give their short takes on great movies. Right now, they're in the middle of a miniseries about Japanese masters that's really entertaining. They've done a couple of Mizuguchi. They're just now moving into Kurosawa. And if you're spoiler-averse, they split the episodes into a spoiler-free part one and then a more thorough part two. So you can still appreciate part of the discussion even if you haven't seen the film. I like it because it's a nice encouragement to get you to check out something that you might not have seen yet. And they're super personable hosts, so check out Film Shake wherever you get your podcasts or at 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Chris Casey, Travis Trudell, Trannon Goble, Ross McLeod, Brian Sauer, Michael Hutchins, Tim Lego, Jacqueline Gennaris, the fine gentleman of Fuds on Film, and our friend Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films podcast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, The 25th Frame, just about anywhere you get your podcast, you'll find us. And we'd like to say a special thanks this time to Kathy Polovina for leaving us a very nice rating and review. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Twenty-fifth frame.
a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.